people seem to think abortion is a recreational activity, and it is a, a, it is a thought process that women go through. And as many women as have abortions, there are that many stories. They are not all poor. They are not all sleeping around and using it as birth control. A lot of them are mothers and cannot bring another child into the family. They're losing their apartment. They, they don't know where they're going to live. Their father will just m- be mortified if they come home and announce they're pregnant. Uh, and they also come in as a couple, as one couple did, for miscarriage management. This couple was pregnant with a child they dearly wanted, and she was losing it. It was a non-viable fetus, and her life was in danger. She was going in to have, have her body cleared of this dangerous situation. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. New Hampshire activists Eileen and Bob have been married over 50 years. They share many of the same values, and together they serve as clinic escorts, volunteering to act as a safe barrier between patients and protesters. Eileen, your activism began decades ago when you were actually protesting against the right to access an abortion. How did that come about? When we lived in San Diego in the early 70s, we became very active in our Catholic church, and it stuck. We, we were very active in visiting nursing homes as Eucharistic ministers, reading from the pulpit uh, during Mass, teaching religious education to high schoolers. And in the early 80s, we were transferred to New Hampshire, and we stayed active in the church. And one of the activities during Lent one year was to protest the abortion center that was nearby. We met at a Catholic church, um, had a service, and then we all formed a parade and marched down the main street holding signs, pray to end abortion. I don't know really what my thoughts were about my personal commitment to to this goal in life. We had our three young children with us. We were a Catholic family practicing our religion as best we knew. And over time, as church stopped giving us what we expected to get from the community, it wasn't God, it was the community we found ourselves in, we broke away and... Now here we are on the sidewalk, uh, protesting the protesters, I guess you can say, defending the women who want to go in for their abortions, which is why I still respect people's religious beliefs, whatever they are. Uh, but I, I also know from my whole Catholic upbringing and my college and postgraduate education in Catholic universities, I was taught that God is always listening to me. So I don't think that the purpose of praying in front of a clinic is anything more than performative. I think it feeds their ego. I think it's there with the undercurrent to embarrass, shame, intimidate women. And I don't think that's what God wants. I think Jesus weeps at that kind of behavior. Um, So protest. I've been a protester. Pray. I pray. 
and please allow women their dignity. How did your life experiences inform who you are today? I grew up as the youngest of a family of six children to a very lower middle class family, working class family. And the lesson my father taught me was that all people are as good as one another, that justice and equality are the prevailing values in our family. And that really has guided me. I I went into education. I taught school for a while and had students with emotional difficulties. So I went back to school myself to become a psychotherapist and do family counseling. How can I teach a child adverbs if they're being beaten at home, have no food on the table? So teaching uh, and then family therapy. I saw so many needs in this world, I decided I would run for elective office and was elected to the state legislature. Served a term to try to solve some problems at that level that affect a lot of us. Um, volunteer work has always been part of my life, whether it was religious education in my parish, uh, working with my husband, Bob, to give marriage encounter weekends, enriching marriage, just out there in the community, living my life and seeing the inequality and, frankly, the misogyny. Uh, I attended a lovely school where I got a wonderful education from Jesuits. I went to Boston College. But in those days, I could only be a teacher or a nurse at Boston College. And there were professors who wouldn't even grade my papers or acknowledge me in classroom to participate. And I thought, this is one area of life where misogyny is allowed within the church structure. I have distanced myself from formal religion. I am spiritual in nature. And while I respect everyone's point of view about religion, I think that no one can force theirs on another person. I'm a mother. We have three children, three adult children, and one granddaughter. Our first son died when he was eight months old, and that certainly shaped who I am and what my goals are. How did that change you, his death? Well, that was probably a big turning point in my, in my religious affiliation. I always thought God was listening to my prayers, and when he did not save Robbie's life, I walked away. And then we were living, because my husband was active military, we lived in seven states, and we were living in San Diego, and we met a community of people who were so joyful. And we thought, um, what they have in common is the church they belonged to, and it was a Catholic church, and we went back, and we became very active in our faith again. Um, and I learned that although I thought God had closed his eyes and heart to me, he was really waiting for me to come back, and we became Eucharistic ministers and uh, very active in our church community. But years later, here we are in New Hampshire, and um, the parish life was very different. We were not accepted as Eucharistic ministers, I as a woman. Um, Our children were treated unkindly by the priest in our parish. And one day when we'd all march off to church every morning, our teenage son said, I'm not going. And I thought I was going to outwit him by saying, well, if you're not going, none of us are going. And we all sat at home that Sunday. And it became our routine to not go to, to Mass any longer. So I, I don't miss it. I find other ways to be enriched, and I see God working in many ways. So uh, my experiences have brought me to this point in life where I think equality and justice 
just like my dad told me, are the things that motivate me now. Bob, could you tell me about your background and what led you to the work that you do today as a volunteer? Well, my uh, background began in uh, Massachusetts, in the in Boston, as a matter of fact, and my family and my grandparents and great-grandparents were all immigrants from Ireland and, and in Germany, and uh, so I had this kind of uh, background. Uh, we lived in South Boston and grew up a little bit there, and uh, later on we moved out to the suburbs and got to experience a whole different kind of way of living and so forth. Uh, and then eventually I moved to a town where uh, my junior, halfway through my junior year of high school, uh, I got uprooted and we moved to a town where Eileen lived. And that's where I met her. And um, a cousin of mine introduced us. It wasn't until uh, when she was uh, in college and I had joined the Marines and then, you know, coming home on leave and, and meeting her again and so forth. That just uh, kind of sparked a love relationship with us that's lasted, you know, 51 years. And we did a lot of things as a couple together, like she was saying, in, uh, you know, teaching uh, engaged couples uh, all our secrets, which there's no real secret. It's just as respect and honoring. And uh, so there's... This whole aspect of, you know, marriage and marriage produces children, if you're lucky. And we, uh, we're uh, very fortunate to have the children that we have. But I think somehow they've taught me more than I've ever taught them. And they've taught me that people are different. They have different experiences. I spent uh, 22 years in the Marines, and we you get to think uh, a certain way and act a certain way and have s- certain expectations. And uh, some of those expectations are good and, and, you know, respect, fidelity, helping each other out, uh, don't leave anybody behind. All these things were great things, but then, you know, I became... As we moved on, I started working as a family therapist, and I got to experience more diversity than I could have dreamt possible when I was in the Marines. It was just amazing the kind of people you meet and what they're like and so forth. So from there, I worked as a family therapist until one day on Valentine's Day, my wife called me in, and she fired me. <laughs> what did you do wrong, Bob? I, I did. I I didn't do anything bad. The, the, the it was one of these times with the state and the state budget. Things expand. Things collapse. And one of the things that collapsed was that uh, I worked a lot with children in need of services and children involved with the court. So some of that stuff, some of those services have gone away, and the state has certainly taken a big step backwards uh, since those days. So I went on and I, uh, I found another job and I worked for the state and I ended up regulating uh, the federal regulations for health care in the state, which is kind of a unique perspective because we'll probably get a little bit at that later on in the interview here. But uh, some of the things, the regulations has to do with patient privacy 
and abuse, neglect, and all sorts of things that are involved in the, on a personal level, just not medical, but the more of a social aspect. So what we did, um, we did things together. That's one thing we, we learned in our marriage. And uh, one of those things that we did together is becoming activists. So we became activists on a political level, on a community level, uh, and working for people's rights. Um, one, one thing that Eileen has is he has this very tender spot for uh, justice. And when she sees injustice... You know, I would I would probably just say, well, that's just the way it is. She just never says that. Just just the way it is. We we have to do something about it. And I've got to see those things. We have to we have to do something about it. So, in my experience in the state, working in uh, with people who have been uh, abused, elderly who's been abused, either by a healthcare facility or by uh, social situations and so forth I got really uh, focused on on what the what the rules and regulations are and what can happen and what goes wrong with inside of an institution what specifically prompted you to become a volunteer clinic escort was it Eileen we had actually um, participated as protesters protesting against abortion. And we'd done this for a number of years, and this is about the time when we were really getting kind of fed up of what was going on in the church and so forth. And it was a, uh, you know, we said, well, this is this is not right. We looked at, you know, Roe v. Way and what's it about. We looked at uh, what was going on in the community. So we started, um, it was a call one day, someone called us and then for the life of me I don't even know who called us but Eileen responded yes we'll go, we'll go down and, and help out and that's what we did and um, there were all kinds of people who were trying to kind of trespass on the property of the the healthcare facility that we were at and so I'm saying is my experience working with healthcare regulations this is crazy it's absolutely crazy. Would you go to a hospital, a major hospital in New Hampshire, and expect to have to walk through protesters? No. I, I don't think anybody would expect that. Would you expect to have your picture taken? That's what happens. You're in a public way. They can take your picture. They can also take pictures of your license, uh, your registration, of your automobile. So there's a lot of things that, I, that just is not right. It's just not normal everyday activity to have these going. If a woman's going for health care, she's going to have to go through a crowd to get there. It's already a fraught decision. It's already difficult before she even gets there. Right. Yeah, and to add to that, if there are people yelling from the street, I can just imagine what the collective blood pressure is in the waiting room. It's, it's going up. The level of stress. Yeah. So, Eileen, would you like to answer that question? What got you started? Um, one day, a friend called me, and she knew someone who worked, worked as a professional inside the healthcare center. And she said, they have people blocking access. The patients are not getting in without going through a hassle out there. Can you go help? And as Bob said, yeah, we did. We showed up and... We guided them through. 
that only lasted a few weeks, and the protesters went away. So for a while, we did not pro- we did not uh, volunteer at the health center as escorts. But all in all, we've been there for over ten years as the need arises. About two and a half years ago, we got a call again that a new group of protesters had shown up, and they were extremely loud, harassing, shaming, inhibiting, blocking just making life miserable for the women going in. So we've been there every Friday for the last two and a half years without fail. And it's usually about a five-hour duty standing on the sidewalk. The protesters hold enormous, what I call, abortion porn signs of uh, disfigured, graphic, but blown up to gigantic size so that you can't miss it. There's a children's bookstore across the street. That offended me. People were walking their kids in to go shopping, and they would walk by these signs. Uh, the, The male protesters wore body cameras. They were only two or three feet away from us, and they were photographing the women going in for a very private health care, not all of them were having abortions. So they were, they were inhibiting on a lot of women. Um, then they would post them on their social media page. And I thought, this isn't right, but it, it, is, it is okay. It's legal. I come from this uh, really broad perspective. I've been a protester, a demonstrator, a marcher, uh, for social justice issues for over 50 years, so I understand the right to protest, and I respect it. And I have, as I said, told you my religious story. I understand people have faith beliefs, and I honor and respect that. What I cannot abide is them pushing it into women. These women are rushing into an important health care appointment and they expect the women to stop and be, as they called, counseled. Well, I am a professional counselor, and that offended me. They call themselves sidewalk counselors, but they're not. They're pushing their religious beliefs. They're shaming them for a personal decision. They are not allowing them the autonomy, the dignity, the fact that they may be women of faith as well who has gotten religious guidance on this decision. They don't respect that they have a conscience, that they are equal human beings. I don't know of any place where a man has to run the gauntlet of people shaming them to go to the doctors. It just, it, it pushed every button I have. And uh, so we've been out there. During the winter, the sidewalks are crowded with snow. And I remember this one day, I had escorted an interpreter into the building and the client she was there for had not arrived. And the snow had pushed us to within literally a foot or two of the protesters. It was also during the pandemic, and they never wore a mask. So that was a huge risk to me with my state of health and age. Um, then, then the woman, who was a non-English-speaking immigrant, started coming down the sidewalk, and I went to greet her. She didn't understand anything I was explaining, and she could n- not talk to me. Um, we approached, and... The men were yelling, leaning in, holding their signs. She looked at me with the most terrified look in her eye. And I put my arm around her to guide her in, and she was shaking. She was just terrified. And I, and I, I don't know how we can allow this to happen in this country, even with the right to protest. New Hampshire in 2014 enacted a 25-foot buffer law 
which means the protesters should not be there, but it has never been enacted. The Enforced? Si- it has never been put into effect. It's, it's not uh, mandatory. It, it, it can be employed or not, but it has never been enforced because Massachusetts had a buffer zone that was mandatory for all the state, and they were ca- constitutionally challenged. Okay. So we're just, New Hampshire has got it on hold. It's sitting, they tried to repeal it this year. I testified against it. I said, it's, it's at this point a safety net because of the situation, like I just described. I mean, it's against the FACE Act, the, the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances. Since yes, 1994, a, a federal law enacted by President Bill Clinton. You cannot inhibit, terrorize, stop impede the progress of a patient, a staff member, or a volunteer into an abortion clinic. That is not even enforced anymore. I mean, uh, when we call for local police support, it depends on their personal perspective on abortion. Some of them are very helpful to us. Other ones just say, okay, you stand here and you stand here. Everything's fine. We've had escorts assaulted uh, with a lot of pushing and shoving because they want to get close. They want to get up close. They stand at the base of the stairway. The clinic where we escort is on the city sidewalk on Main Street. Some, some policemen will not enforce any kind of distancing. The code enforcement people were wonderful. They came down when we called because the protesters had a beach umbrella, two display tables, a doggy bed and doggy bowls, uh, all their paraphernalia and signs, and a group of anywhere from 10 to 12 to 15 protesters standing within inches now. They also had sandwich board signs on the sidewalk. And the only way we could get action is to say, there's no room on the sidewalk for a wheelchair to go by. So they came down and cleared out the encampment, and that was a, that was a big step forward for us to be able to have some breathing space. And um, uh, So that's how we started, and I, I am there. I think there are a few things in life that you, you make your stand for, and mine is to have women have the right to to access legal, safe health care. They're never going to stop abortion. They can pray, they can protest, but they cannot physically or in spirit stop a woman from going in by terrorizing her. And I will be the buffer. I am the buffer zone. The escorts that some of, some of us are called defenders, uh, we are the buffer zone. If there is not going to be a, a legal parameter around the building, then it will be us. I will be between the patients and the, and the protesters. The ironic thing is we are there for their safety as well. We've had to intercede to keep them safe when male partners or even the patients themselves get so irate that they want to be uh, physically confrontational. So it is a job of just providing for the right to protest, the right to your religious belief, and the right to access and to keep it safe for the community. Are there other personal stories that help illustrate the issue? Uh, Another one. Uh, People seem to think abortion is a recreational activity, and it it is a thought process that women go through. And as many women as have abortions, there are that many stories. They are not all poor. They are not all sleeping around and using it as birth control. A lot of them are mothers and cannot bring another child into the family. They're losing their apartment. They, they don't know where they're going to live. Their father will just 
be mortified if they come home and announce they're pregnant. Uh, and they also come in as a couple, as one couple did, for miscarriage management. This couple was pregnant with a child they dearly wanted, and she was losing it. It was a non-viable fetus, and her life was in danger. She was going in to have, have her body cleared of this dangerous situation. And the protesters were yelling at them, Do not kill your baby. You are going to leave here as the mother of a dead baby. Mister, you should be protecting your child. Tell her no. That couple had to spend an extra hour inside being consoled before they could do a medical procedure. They were heartbroken to come in, and they were being judged and shamed. And the name-calling is unbelievable. We are called murderers all the time. We're told we have blood on our hands, that we're going to hell, um, that we are actively killing children, that we hate babies. The madness takes over sometimes, and it's a, it's a struggle to, to maintain my own dignity and to also not let them have those airwaves. We used to not engage with them and be pretty much silent and just escort the women by them. We found that that was not as effective as talking back to them, not while the patients were out there, but once they were in, we would go in and, and challenge them on their behavior and remind them it's none of their business, basically. You come down to this simple thing that it's none of your business. One more question for you, Eileen, and then we'll ask your experience outside the clinic, Bob. Has it taken an emotional toll on you, or are you fairly able to compartmentalize your life? Uh, it, it does take a toll, and I think even in my work as a psychotherapist, it's pretty common that you get a, sort of a black sense of humor. And on Thursday nights, Bob and I would kind of role-play what might happen out there and present the worst scenarios and the things we'd like to say and do that we never do. And then on Friday, we hold it together during the activity. Very often afterwards, uh, when the clinic hours are done and the patients are all safely in, we walk away, and before we can come home, we'd go decompress to go have coffee somewhere downtown to talk it out. What did you think when you said that? How did this woman, what will do if this happens again? Is there a better way to protect the women? And we would have to process it and decompress before we come home, or it, it fills you. And um, yeah, we have to compartmentalize it. But Thursday night, we gear up. Very often, neither of us sleep well, anticipating. And, um, and we try to shed it before we come home on Friday. But certain stories, certain looks, certain situations stay with me. And I, it fuels me, to be quite honest. It fuels me to go back the next week. It's wonderful. It's a blessing that you have a partner who shares your values and who can understand your experience. Absolutely. Okay, Bob. So the question was, what's your experience outside the clinic? I'm very vigilant. Um, I am constantly looking for uh, somebody, because we have a lot of people walking up and down the street, somebody who could potentially be assaultive. Not just the protesters, but somebody who just has an anti-abortion type of view and wants to carry it out against somebody who believes that a woman has the right to choose. And so that vigilance goes, you know, looking up and down the street. I, you know, I had, I had a couple of combat tours in Vietnam. That just kind of brings back some of that uh, vigilance that what I'm looking at and what I'm seeing and judging people. 
You know, we have Concord is a, a city where there's lots of people who receive mental health, and we've had some people who've been uh, borderline assaultive, just but out of control themselves. And, uh, for instance, there's a guy that walks up and down the street every once in a while. He's carrying two big clubs. You know, I'm wondering, is this the day that this guy is going to go off? We have a woman who uh, walks, she walks down the sidewalk, but then she'll go out in the street. And when she's out in the street, she's saying the worst things she could possibly say about us. But she keeps on walking. So um, you can't respond to anything like that, really. So it becomes problematic. Uh, like Eileen mentioned that uh, sometimes we provide security for the protesters. And I can think of an occasion happened where a couple were going in, and this is before the pandemic, uh, so the couple, they could go in as a couple into the building. And there was a, a guy who was, uh, you know, he, he, was a, I could, he was wearing a Bruin shirt, and he looked like he could play hockey, and he was bringing his uh, partner in. And the people on the street got very mouthy with them and saying a real man, real man would tell her no. You, you tell her no. She can't do that. What kind of man are you? And um, he started getting a little bit mouthy. Uh, the partner did, you know, responding to what they were saying. And, uh, but he didn't do anything at that point. But then he went, he br- brought his partner into the, the building and once he was situated safely inside, he um, he came back out, and uh, as at that point he let go on one of the uh, protesters, and we were able to uh, get in between him and this guy. But it, he was so aggressive that the uh, one of the protesters called the police. This, he didn't actually touch this guy, but he called the police and said all the things that he said, you know. And I'm thinking. You know, as a man, I'm thinking these things. You know, I don't, I wouldn't want someone to uh, talk to Eileen that way. And I can understand why this guy wouldn't want anybody to talk. He's just going, he's bringing her to health care, to her appointment. And he's getting a whole lot of hassle about his manhood and so forth. So that's a, a, a situation that stuck out. And they called the cops and the cops came down and basically... Uh, the guy was a hockey player and fairly well known in the town. And uh, the cop, uh, you know, they had a chat, so to speak, and uh, nothing, nothing legally happened out of it. It was basically, you go to your corner, you go to your corner. But people shouldn't have to put up with this. They're just going to, for medical care. So either of you, you were both adults. When Roe v. Wade was passed, the law that allows abortion, that makes it a constitutional right. I was a child. What do you remember pre-Roe v. Wade and how it's different today? Just the general climate in the country before and after. I was in college, and I had a lot of friends who had gone to have their illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade. And it was like uh, somebody... Open the open the doors and let the fresh air in, and it was they were no longer ashamed, and they knew they would get safe, clean medical help. It was an enormous relief for a lot of women who were pregnant, and it was not time for them to pre- be pregnant. 
they wanted to be married and have a family at some point, this was not the time. And now they could do it without having to uh, scrounge money secretly, to look between the cushions for the money to get to the bus to New York City or whatever they needed to do. Um, Right now... (laughs) I feel like someone slammed those doors closed. It's getting to be a very frightening time for women of childbearing age. The restrictions are getting tighter and tighter. Uh, There is no medical term, late-term abortions. That's a political construct. And right now, uh, uh, the governor in my state has said 24 weeks is late-term. He even called it up to the last minute. Well, that is not technically true at all. But what's to say in a next year, they're going to say 18 weeks is late-term abortion. And then what if it's 10 weeks? And as long as they throw in the term viability and medical advances are progressing as they do, we may be able to keep a, a very early fetus alive outside the womb. It does not change the fact that a woman has the right to decide to be pregnant or not. I believe being a mother is a big deal. And I believe every baby should be wanted. And there is no stranger who can tell you you must carry a pregnancy. Maybe your body is not built for it. Maybe you're 11 years old and your stepfather raped you. Uh, With New Hampshire's new law of a 24-week ban, it doesn't have any exception for rape or incest. And that is really worrisome for me. I think we're going backwards. I think it's uh, politicians have no place between the, a woman and her doctor. Um, it is, it, it's like women have become expendable. I'm not sure what their ultimate goal is other than control. I wonder if they are afraid if women had as much power as men do, if we would treat them the way they treat us. So those are the things that run through my mind right now. Because something has to change, and saying vote is not the answer. That we've been saying that for a decade or more, and um, we make we take a half step forward, and then we're back two steps. So there, there has to be more, and I think women have to really unite. No one is going to ever tell you you have to have an abortion. An, an abortion provider will not give a woman a, an abortion if it's not her choice. We've seen minors come into the center. Um, and they are always they always have a private counseling moment with told all their options and asked if it's their choice. And when a, when a young girl said, no, my dad insists, they did not perform an abortion on her. She was very young, but it is still her right. So I worry about where we're going and what it's going to take for women to say, whether you have an abortion You have your own abortion. It's your body. If you choose to have a baby, I am going to be with you right there, praying that it's a healthy, happy child and help you through it. What do you need? How can I provide for you? But um, something has got to change because this country cannot continue making women second-class citizens. Roe v. Wade was passed uh, before I developed a social conscious. So... um, all right, so it could pass, and it's the Constitution, and this is what people can do. Okay, I understand that. I, I took an oath to swore and, and defend the Constitution. Um, I never really had to think about it much because uh, it just wasn't my experience. I kind of grew 
uh, into the way I believe now through through experience and and watching what's happening and how uh, women are trying to uh, are controlled by well one uh, church and if you look at the like I had a a long Irish history and the church in Ireland and all the things they you know abortion just became legal in the let's say in the last couple of years I think. Uh, but before that, they would, uh, you could have a baby, but then they had all these uh, orphanages around the, the country, and and look at all the baby, look at all the graves that they've uncovered at these orphanages. So when uh, a religious doctrine or religious people get to be in charge of things, things go haywire. Because the, the power is absolute, and they're absolutely right in their own thinking, and there's no room for any other viewpoint. Religious leaders in this country, though, don't even agree on when life begins. I mean, certainly the Catholic Church will say that it begins at conception, which really brings us to the crux of the argument. Who gets to decide? Is it religion? Is it the government? Or is it a woman and her medical provider? Well, I've, I've got a quick answer for that, and it, it's an informed conscience, a woman, and her provider. They're the ones who get to choose together. And it's always ultimately the woman's decision, what she wants to do. I know there are other viewpoints, and people are based on this doctor and that doctor and, and, and so forth. And a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff is fiction. You go into the Bible, you'll find all kinds of references to abortion. It's a reality of life that abortions are sometimes required because that's what people choose. Well, I think it's just such a simple, elegant solution. The woman gets to choose, and she can choose what she wants to do. She can have her baby, and she cannot have a baby. Um, politicians are not... M- by and large, or uniformly, or absolutely, medical professionals. And churches have a variety of outlooks. Uh, Even in the Catholic Church, a majority of women approve of abortion. And they practice birth control, which is also against the Catholic religion. So I think when there are rules, people pick and choose which ones they're going to follow, and this seems to be the one that that uh, the disparity falls on because people want it to be one or the other. And when you have choice, it's both. (laughs) No one loses. So um, I I just think it's a simple solution. Absent from this conversation is the fact that men equally participate in the creation of a pregnancy. But we're not talking in this country about mandating a vasectomy, which is generally reversible. Because for some reason, we trust men to make their own health care decisions and to control their own bodies. Why do you think this is the case, that we're targeting women and not men? When I have brought up the subject, and we've even talked about it on the sidewalk with protesters, or when in social media I mentioned vasectomy being more easily reversible and likely to lead to a wanted pregnancy than a tubal ligation reversal, for instance, or the fact that a woman should be putting chemicals into her body daily to avoid a pregnancy, which can also fail, 
a lot of women who come in for abortions were on birth control and it didn't work. Um, we don't talk about men's responsibility because men make the rules. And women should follow them. <laughs> and it's some women seem to not fall into that category, and so it's, it's become a tussle. You know, we're, we're speaking up, we're fighting back, and we're having opinions that are based in science. Yeah, one of the things that just amazes me in this argument is that, uh, you know, women can't make a, a medical decision. But you know something? Women live longer than men. Married men live longer than single men. So I know of many cases where a male, a husband, was spurned, forced, conjoled, dragged to the doctor's office for some type of condition that that his wife could see. Obviously, you need medical help. So women intuitively, I think, are better caregivers and know what... uh, people need. Uh, For men to start legislating and saying, no, we're going to do it this way and do it that way, or run a church and say, no, this is the rule. You can't have that. That's a sin. Uh, That's just, it just doesn't make sense. You know, women have more of an intuitive, instinctive, almost genetic capability of taking care of people better. In May, the Texas high school valedictorian Paxton Smith went off script and delivered a graduation speech about abortion rights. And this came on the heels of a bill that Governor Abbott signed, which bans abortions after six weeks when many women don't even know they're pregnant. A ban that makes no exception for rape or incest. And Paxton said, I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail me, That if I am raped, then my hopes and efforts and dreams for myself will no longer be relevant. I hope you can feel how gut-wrenching it is, how dehumanizing it is, to have the autonomy over your own body taken from you. And this really stood out to me because we're talking about a teenager distilling the essence of the struggle. And I can't help but think that we women are a wedge issue, much in the same way that the LGBTQ movement is, more or less a way to dehumanize us and to score conservative votes. And this bill that the governor signed into law also effectively deputizes regular people to enforce the ban by allowing them to sue people in Texas, like yourself, a volunteer escort, among others, What's your reaction to that development? Well, first of all, Paxton, I love you. You give me hope. And I think every person from now on who has asked any question ever about anything should start off by saying women should have bodily autonomy and then go on with whatever conversation they wanted to have initially. The fact that people could become vigilantes to turn in people who are committing no crime. I don't want my friends and neighbors and community members to be a vigilante watching my actions. As an escort, I'm not, I'm not um, kidnapping women to have abortions. I am not stopping people from protesting. A law like that in Texas is, is going to erupt 
And uh, I think they'll have horrible consequences that we don't even consider right now. There'll be blowback from everybody. The Texas law, you know, every day you watch the news and you see the most horrendous things happen on the news. Mass shootings, police murdering, uh, disasters happening, all this stuff. And, you know, then I hear somebody say, well, we're better than that. And I have to say, no, we're not. We are not better than that. And I remember the song by John Mellencamp, Ain't That America? Well, it is. That is America right now. You're developing a vigilante society. You want to deputize the citizens of Texas to go around snooping on one another? Or was, were they going to start looking at your uh, sanitary products when you throw them out? Uh, go through that? It's just it's insane that that small-minded, bigoted people, and I call them bigoted because they're bigoted towards women, and uh, they're just, you know, it, it empowers them. You give them the law. They like following laws. You give them a law that damages and hurts people. Uh, you're going to sue them for somebody wanting medical care. It's just, uh, you know, it's insane, but ain't that America. The Supreme Court plans to hear a Mississippi abortion case this fall, which is one of the most direct challenges to the Roe v. Wade ruling. Where do you see the future of abortion care heading? It's going to be a very difficult next uh, year and a half or so. Uh, But I think in the end, I'm hoping, and it's, you know, I'm I'm an optimist, and I'm hoping that women will maintain the right to have abortions and be able to choose. And I'm also hoping that uh, states will come, will smart, you know, they're under the trance. They're under a trance of, of, of absolute power, religious doctrine, and uh, former presidents. They're just under the trance. And hopefully they'll snap out of it somewhere along the line when it gets personal to them. When they, when they have a... a, a a wife or a daughter and is going to have a have to carry a non-viable fetus to the end and maybe it will kill her but the law says you cannot do that well you cannot have an abortion well it's it's just crazy when you start dictating statutory law with medical good sound medical practice it's so I think we're in for a, a rough year and a half or so but I think things will eventually straighten out um Women will still have abortions. They might not have it on Main Street, but they'll still have them. My friends who escort at the Pink House, the last abortion center in Mississippi, are extremely worried. Uh, They never thought it would come to this, and here we are. They talk, too, about um, having states around them with no abortion facilities. So they're the last hope. In New England, we are a small state, and we can travel state to state in a matter of an hour or so, and there are states surrounding us that have uh, enhanced protections. We also are a rich state, and we know rich people will always be able to have their abortions, even if they have to hop on their private jet and fly to Europe to get them. Um, I'm wondering if abortifacients, the medical abortion pills, will be allowed to be dispensed for home use. 
Uh, I think there is a gun, will be a way around this, but we are in a war, and I think we have to unite to fight. It's extremism. It's not even rational at this point. It's, it's gone to extremism, and it's endangering a lot of people. There's no shortage of babies. When the, uh, the protesters tell us, well, she just has to put it up for adoption, and I think, do they know what that could do to a woman to, to carry and give their child away? Um, will that child be adopted? Have you ever been into a foster home? We have as home-based family therapists. Not all of them are bad, certainly not. Um, it's not an easy life. One of the people on the sidewalk talks all the time about having grown up in a series of foster homes. There are children to be adopted. We don't need to flood uh, orphanages with more babies. So I think the future of abortion will be maintained at some level, somehow, whether it's legal or illegal, but it's never going to go away. Do we value women's lives enough to protect them during that procedure? I think a useful place to start is to advocate for policies that reduce abortion. Some of this hard work that we need to do, I think, is making health care more accessible, investing in our children, reducing poverty, not standing on the street corner at the 11th hour shaming women. Absolutely. And where is the money being invested in those, those efforts? If reducing the number of abortions is the goal, we know many routes to get there. When people say no one likes abortion, I say, well, I've met people who do. I've talked to a lot of women who have had abortions. A, a small minority, a tiny minority have regretted the abortion. All of them regretted the pregnancy. When people say we want as few as possible, I just say we need as many as we need. Um, and if the if the community, if the country's actual passion is to reduce the number of abortions, then let's make it possible for a woman to have a living wage while she's raising children, probably as the only person, adult in the house. Let's make it possible for fathers to have time off to take care of their kids. Let's let's make the schools educate all of us equally, not not good school districts and failing school districts. There are so many things that need to happen in order to make a life worth living where, where young people say, let's have a baby. I have so many friends in their 30s and 40s who said, um, I would never bring a child into this world. Our two daughters are not going to be mothers by choice. I, you know, there is no part of my grandmother spirit that says, yes, you really should. I, I cannot imagine being a young woman in this world today. And um, whatever means they take to avoid being pregnant, I, that's their body, their life. It's not up for me to approve or disapprove or even know about. And the reason women have abortions, you'll never know because, guess what, it's not your business. <laughs> and... Uh, that's, that's the way I see it, is that just respect a woman and know that she's an intelligent, whole, full, equal human being of conscience. When we go out there on Friday mornings uh, and there's protesters out there, we, uh, you know, they're on one side, we're on another. But there's another group of people who are walking by on the sidewalk. And a lot of people who walk by on the sidewalk don't always say it out loud. But they'll give us thumbs up. They'll give us uh, a thank you. 
we're so glad you're here. And we've got to fight for these rights. All kinds of things like that. Uh, now, I'm not saying that the the protesters don't get some kind of positive feedback, but we get much more feedback than they do that is positive. And it certainly is. The vast majority of the women in this country and even men uh, are for equal rights and the right for a woman to choose. It is a real morale booster when the pedestrians or even the cars go by and honk and give us thumbs up. Uh, we've been delivered cold drinks in the summer and hot drinks in the winter, and uh, only one person has ever spit at me, so I think I'm on the winning team. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for helping women access health care. You're welcome. grateful. We're, we are uh, sorry we have to do it, but we'll do it until we don't need to. Would you be willing to help me attract new listeners? Rating and reviewing my show through Apple Podcasts helps people discover the podcast. Telling your friends to listen and sharing this episode on your social media channels also helps. Please and thank you. If you have a story you'd like to share, or if you know an interesting person I should contact, message me on social media. Or drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. <music> <music>